Monocle on Culture is brought to you in association with The Woolmark Company. Every week on Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound and his guests discuss what has piqued their interest in our one-stop shop for lively reports and in-depth interviews on the newest and finest in art, film, books and media. At The Woolmark Company, we are just as passionate about the curation of The Perfect Wardrobe, fashion from the most versatile, sustainable, all-round fibre, wool. Australia is the world leader in producing fine merino wool for apparel. This noble fibre is produced by tens of thousands of passionate Australian wool growers who know that happy, healthy sheep produce the world's best wool. It's naturally soft, but also tough. Research firm Nielsen delved into the wardrobes of a thousand consumers in China, Japan, Germany, the UK and the US. The resulting study showed that woolen items were among the most durable pieces of clothing that people own, staying in their wardrobes for longer than clothing made from other fibres. Welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bounds. On today's programme, we've moved to LA, we're dating a hunk, we hang out on film sets and in artist studios, and we've assumed an air of breezy indifference that disguises our considerable talents. Because why else? We're discussing the great novelist, journalist, and now memoirist, Eve Babbitts, one of the great living patron saints of the City of Angels. Why now? Because a new collection of Babbitts' journalism, memoir and a few short stories has just been published by New York Review of Books Classics under the title I Used to Be Charming, The Rest of Eve Babbitts. Babbitts was born in Hollywood and attended Hollywood High. Her father was a violinist and her mother was an artist and she hung out at the Troubadour when she was young. She met all the bands and ended up designing album covers for the Birds and Buffalo Springfield just because when asked she told people that that's what she did. At the age of 20 she played chess with Marcel Duchamp who was wearing a suit and tie. She was wearing nothing. It was very Eve Babbitts. She said it was to make her boyfriend jealous. It's this sort of charming mix of chutzpah, luck, judgement, skill and charm allied to Babbitt's laser-focused reading of people, places and social scenes that ensure her legions of fans will adore the style and substance of I Used To Be Charming. And joining me to discuss are the writer Lucy Scholes and the writer and host of The Last Bohemians podcast, Kate Hutchinson. Welcome both to the programme. Lovely to have you here. Hi, nice to be here. We're quite excited about this. Before we switched on the microphones and I did my blurb, we were kind of um, we were looking at where we were in the book and in what order we'd been reading the essays and all the rest of it. So, Kate, let's start with you. The reputation of Eve Babbitts. What what does she put you in mind of when you read her? Are you transported to another city, possibly another time? Absolutely, she's um, part of the the swinging, the exciting sixties, the yeah. rock and roll seventies. She puts me right on the Sunset Strip. I'm drinking a martini in a sort of debauched, glamorous cocktail bar, and <laughs> you know, there's all these promise of rock and roll men and famous actors. I think what's really interesting with her is that she sort of. Uh, connected the movers and shakers of the time she wasn't just sort of tied to one scene she wasn't just tied to the rock and roll she she brought she was moved with the artists yeah. she moved with the writers she moved with the actors she was friends with Steve Martin and she shagged Harrison Ford you know she <laughs> she sort of she moved between all these different scenes and these different people and um, when I read her books I just get a sense of a personality a type of woman maybe that doesn't so much that I'm not seeing 
represented so much yeah. right now. Somebody who celebrates her sexuality, who can square up to Warren Beatty in terms of how many how many people <laughs> she's had sex with and who isn't afraid of talking about sex, which is brilliant. So in some ways, she was kind of, uh, I don't know whether she, she was before a, t- a time in any way whatsoever. That might be a, a sort of a phrase that denudes her of a lot of her kind of talents, actually, or takes away a lot of stuff. Um, she was just who she was at the time that she was. But it may, may be more difficult to be her now, maybe. I think it's really interesting that Eve Babitz is kind of... Um uh, notoriety, or she's been rediscovered in the last few years, and she's got this yeah. massive millennial sort of uh, fan base of women like myself in their thirties or whatever. But the Me Too movement's happening, so the Me Too movement is saying one thing, and yet we're enthralled with this woman who kind of, you know, didn't that doesn't really like vibe with us sort of the, the necessarily with the things yeah. that she's talking about. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of how she's kind of come back and the kind of person that she was. Yeah. Lucy, what is Eve Babbitts like on the page? I love saying Eve Babbitts, 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 Babbitts. What is Eve Babbitts like to read? What's her style? Oh, she's great fun. I think the thing I most like about reading her is that she reads like you're having a conversation with her, like you're a friend, and she's just telling you about this thing she did last night, that she was down at the troubadour, and then like so-and-so came in, and then she did this, and then she did that. And so she pulls you along. There's not really... There's not any sense of sort of artifice or structure in the way that you might find in a lot of essays or memoirs, This, you know. And I think particularly when you compare it to someone like Joan Didion, which may, is a really good example, someone who's writing at exactly the same time, same kind of place, you know, they're both in L.A. They're both very much associated with writing about L.A., but their attitudes towards their writing are so different, and you can see it on the page. Didion is very... Um, there's a sort of remove there. There's something quite serious. There's a kind of a gravitas to the work, and there's also a sort of bit doom and gloom and then you've got Babbitts who's in like a ray of sunshine and she's yeah. just jumping about between things and you know I think like Kate was saying she's she'll just bring in all these different pop cultural references but none of it is to really try and prove a point it's all just to tell her story and that's what she did again and again was write about her life whether it's memoir whether it's the short stories whether it's novels it's always just Eve Babbitts basically. Yeah I think that that Joan Didion comparison comes up a lot doesn't it but, mm. but Eve was in it she was living it she was sort of, you know, pants around her ankles, you know, glugging mezcal or whatever, whereas Joan was definitely, Joan Didion was definitely kind of more prim on the outside, like yeah. you said. But but Eve doesn't sort of, um, Eve, Eve has this ability to sort of zoom out as well. She, she knows about the artifice of Hollywood, about the fakeness of it, about the ridiculousness of a lifestyle as a party girl or a party boy. Yeah. So she can do that amazing thing of landing you right in the sort of action, but then also pulling it back and going, God, this I mean, it is, it is ridiculous. Because she was so much a part of this scene. As yeah. in, you know, L.A. at that point, she was born and raised there. I think you mentioned her father was a violinist in the L.A. Philharmonic, I think yeah. it was. You know, her godfather was um, Igor Stravinsky. She grew up in this kind of environment where famous people and sort of ordinary, I don't know, you know, like surfers, you know, beach bums were kind of rubbing next to each other. And so she knew all these people and you get a real sense of Hollywood, I think, at that time of being something that's actually... 
I don't know, the fame or the people who are going to be famous or were famous were quite accessible in a way that I don't think they are today as well. Yeah, we the, the book starts with a really revealing look at being on the set of The Godfather 2. Exactly. Francis Ford Coppola and having access to all sorts of people. Al Pacino's in a bad mood because he's always being bossed around by Coppola. Coppola is kind of interested in almost everything other than making the movie, which is why the movie ended up being so good, she seems to say. But... Yeah, she. You know, there is no. There are no PR people running around with clipboards. I mean, she has access in a way that yeah. you'd just die for today, right? Yeah. But you would never get that. So, and like you were saying, the like, famous people she knew before they were famous, while they were famous, you know, after. She just sort of knows the right people, but not because she's necessarily. She's not sort of, um, you know, seeking out celebrity in the way that someone might today. She just knows those people and lives with them. What I love is just the confidence of how she talks about these people that she knows. I don't, I can't think of any contemporary equivalent. I, I think some of her prose and the way that she writes and she sort of brings in these surreal details and she describes people or things in this kind of wonderful way. Like I just picked out this, um, she describes a character in Sex and Rage, one of her books as, you know, smelling like a birthday party for small children, just things like that, you know. But. <laughs> I can't think of anybody now who who writes from that kind of perspective with that sort of confidence and that kind of two fingers up. She doesn't care. She's writing about people she's had sex with. She's writing about pretensions of people. She's She calls Oliver, St- Oliver Stone, who we kind of think of, we revere as this sort of wonderful film director. You know, in one of her um, essays about Jim Morrison in this book, this new book, she says that he was he was deathly boring because he was a, he he joined the army he was establishment you know yeah. he wanted to be boring and just things like that you just wouldn't necessarily get now you wouldn't get that inside mm. a track yeah she's like uh she writes like she's not scared of being thrown out of the club and i think that's kind of a that's a nice thing i was thinking about eve babbitts and thinking it's quite difficult to sort of write about yourself but not sort of solipsistically not selfishly to not to make it you know as you said she's kind of writing her memoirs and her novels are about herself and about her experiences but you never you never feel cramped by the fact that she's looking in a mirror because she's always she's always pouring it outwards somewhere it's a it's quite tough to write like that when you 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 seem to be one of your sole um sources of inspiration i'm trying to think of someone else yeah, I think, I don't know what makes her maybe so, I don't know, part of what I think what makes her different about that is you never really get the sense that it is her ego talking because she's always very interested in the other people around her partly. So it's not, I don't know, it's not the sense of, I don't think she genuinely thinks that she's got some brilliant story or some brilliant life that she needs to tell everyone else about. I think that she wants to talk about just what happened to her because it's interesting, you know, yeah. like... I don't know, she does have a whole essay in I Used to Be Charming, this new uh, uh, compendium about her tits. That's very true. <laughs> that is very true. Which is called something like, um, I had thirty-two double, D- I had 36 double Ds, or what it's like to have 36, which I just thought was absolutely brilliant. I mean, you know, get straight to the point, Eve. But she wrote, and the people, and the publications for whom she writes are the LA Times, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, Rolling Stone, I guess. But she writes, I think, that, I t- don't know whether that, which one the tits essay is for but it's not for who you might think it's not for cosmopolitan it's for someone else isn't it this one's actually for Miz. I don't. Miz oh, okay. seems to be some kind of seventies mm. sort of, I don't know, women's magazine that's probably yeah. fallen off the. And Playgirl, she writes for as well. And Playgirl. I mean, yeah. she really. Those are all magazines where you can really kind of you can have fun and you can kind of really get into the sort of personal essay. But I mean, 
<laughs> this she compares her tits to being like Carrie Grant, and she says in this essay, you know, that it's like men. It's like when you see somebody famous, and you've and you run up to them, and you've got all the will in the world to say something really intelligent, and all you can say is just their name. And she gets the, guys will just run up to her and just go tits. So she's sort of she, but she's never taking herself seriously. I think, which is so wonderful. Not that she's not trying to do herself down, but she's not. That's not an essay that's kind of oh woe is me I've got these huge tits and no. it's really hard you know she's, she's making light of it and she's talking about the reality of what it's like and laughing at these men in, but not in a I didn't I mean I suppose that's the different you know I'd sort of love to hear her take on me too obviously you don't think we'll get it because she's so reclusive yeah. but I'd sort of I, I'd imagine she'd have quite a different take to a lot of people who yeah, are writing right. about it today yeah she talks about and whether it's in that in the in the tits essay, I'm putting inverted commas around it. Don't know why. No one can see my, <laughs> the bats No one essay, can see my fingers. The boobs essay. Um, she says, you know, I've got these, um, I've got these breasts, but then I've never had a parking ticket in my life <laughs> because of them. I, I think, I think the takeaway for me from an essay like the in in quote marks tits essay is that she was unafraid. I mean, this was in the 70s. She wrote this, right? She was unafraid of displaying her sexuality, of reveling in her good looks, in her voluptuous figure. Um, and she wasn't afraid of talking, but she wasn't afraid. She was like, hey, yeah, sometimes I use this to my advantage, and that's fine. Yeah, That is, is actually, it's absolutely okay. And that is a perspective that I think, yeah, maybe we've, we're losing a little bit of, or, or people that are, are ashamed of oh. using their kind of sexual mores, if that's even the right way to describe it. So yeah, I think, I think there's a real sort of um, unabashed celebration of her of her body, but I which think comes through. A link to that is also the way that in um, in this in the essays in this book, there's a lot of objectification of the men that she slept with and yeah, the men exactly. that she finds attractive. So it's not that. I mean, there's no. This is a very simplistic way of looking at it, but there's no sense of victimhood. Like she is doing to men what we often accuse men of doing to women a lot of the time. And I love that she talks about kind of beautiful naked male bodies with such reverence and such desire. And again, that's quite rare to find, I think, in a female writer. There's such honesty kind of on, on both sides. Yeah, table, exactly. Yeah. I have to say that I, going back to what you were saying, Lucy, about um, you'd love to read her writing in the Me Too, it, it is such a shame because in this in this book you get, I mean, the title I used to be charming is the name of, I think, the first thing she's written uh, recently, which is yeah. about how, so she had this fantastically, you know, full party hedonistic lifestyle. Then I think she went into AA for alcohol and drug abuse and all her famous friends kind of paid to get her through AA and, I think they did a fundraiser at the Chateau Marmont. Maybe they did I think loads. That was of, late. That was slightly later. That was later. Yeah. And then she had this terrible accident in the nineties. She lit a cigar, a cherry flavored cigar, and she dropped the match and she set herself on fire. And this essay that she writes is the first. So and then she becomes a recluse. And this essay is the first essay that she writes, really looking at that. And and it kind of it really does leave you wanting more mm. because, again, how she writes about her um you know having this very traumatic experience when when your body is a thing that you know you celebrate and she says in the essay oh god i did have such wonderful skin yeah. you know but it yeah. all kind of burnt off in this awful, in this awful accident and so it does leave you wanting more more of her yeah. sort of take on her take on how she's f- famous again now yeah i think that would be very interesting to read i mean that essay is fascinating because i think well also because the burn accident happened and 
it was sort of you know it's sort of almost mythological as well like they, like you were saying this beautiful woman who then ended up yeah. with third degree burns over 50 percent of her body say her feet only saved by her ugg boots i mean you can't really make it up can you I know. that like, was a really interesting <laughs> detail. it's wonderful and the what? and the and the high quality wool scarf she put in her groin so it sort of saved her private parts yeah. i don't know like this kind of very interesting bit of i don't know any, but and then she sort of disappears and she seems very you know she is very reclusive now and she wouldn't she doesn't want to talk about other things and i think i read that that essay as well took was actually really hard for her to write because she made notes while she was recovering she's in the hospital for a really long time afterwards and doing intense physical therapy um, and she nearly died she had a 50 percent chance of dying it was so horrendous um, and she made all these notes, but she was kind of hopped up on a lot of, you know, painkillers and it wasn't making sense. And then went back and wrote it later because it has two dates, doesn't it? And it's sort of um, 97 when it happens in 2009, 19 when it's being published. So I'd love to hear what she's sort of thinking about the general like cultural moment now. Right. Yeah. she. I mean, she's someone whose voice you miss. But then it's one of those things. Maybe she's the, uh, maybe she's the voice of an era. Is she the voice of an era? Is it, Would it be? Would you would you welcome what she thought about? The Los Angeles, especially the, the especially with Me Too, especially the movie industry and all the rest of it, this sort of dream factory where when she was writing about it, she seemed very capable of seeing the cogs in the factory turning, but also was kind of aware that the dreams coming out were pretty good too. You know what I mean? I think she's really That's interesting cynical. in that sense of being a voice of a generation, though, because she is in one sense, if you talk about LA in the 70s, particularly Hollywood, you can't really not think of Eve Babbitt's right. But at the same time, she doesn't write, when you think about it, about a lot of cultural events that were happening at the time. She's often quite focused on the people she knows. She does mention things like the Manson murders at some point in these essays, but she's not well known for writing on kind of big cultural happenings. Mm -hmm. So she's got a sort of, like, she's both of her time, but also slightly out of time at the same moment. Yeah. No, she's no Joan Didion, right? She's not. Yeah, that's the thing. Know, I suppose jo jo Joan Didion focused on those big things, tried to define those big things. Yeah, and was very much about defining the era. Yeah, 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 exactly. And Babis is doing something very different. And I think a lot of what Kate's been talking about is what makes her writing so great and like it makes it different in that sense so I like see I love Joan, Joan Didion as well and I don't see them as that far I don't find her to be the more matronly or the more f sort of obviously forensic one I know that she's not sexy and throwaway and, and you, you, you know talking about herself and her uh, her body and things as much as Eve Babbitt's is but I kind of feel I can kind of read them one, ne one next to the other the, the introduction to this new book by uh, Molly Lambert uh, opens with a quote from Eve Babbitt's and it says and because we were in Southern California in Hollywood even there was no history for us there were no books or traditions telling us how we could turn out or what anything meant which I could almost describe that to either of those writers actually it's such it's such a specific Los Angeles kind of take on the world but I kind of could put that to, in either of their bibliography somehow yeah I, I feel like it's just a pace thing for me I think Lucy mm. said it earlier about the way that Eva it's just it's just so it's gossipy it's quick it's fun it's like she's dragging you through by your hair or by your kind of <laughs> yeah. collar through this kind of wild lifestyle and I think that's really a kind of very um visceral sort of yeah she paints very sort of visceral pictures whereas whereas I don't want to keep comparing it to Joan but it's just more 2D in a way I feel okay Kate did you have something that you wanted to read Oh, here I've got something about the um, 
Oh, this, well, this is just going back to what I was saying about Oliver Stone being uncool. <laughs> so this is kind of, you know... Re Oliver Stone. On, yeah. Imagine let's, if it let's had... emphasize that. You want an index in these books, actually. I know, there isn't I know. one that you wish there is, was. She gives you the insider knowledge that I just don't think was there. You know, you had your sort of rock critics writing about The Doors and your film about Oliver Stone, and it was, you know, oh, they're just so fantastic, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, actually, this is, this is what it was like. Yeah. Okay. The doors were embarrassing, like their name. I dragged Jim into bed before they'd decided on the name and tried to dissuade him. It was so corny naming yourself after something Aldous Huxley wrote. I mean, the doors of perception. One ogi, geeky, 2LA, pottery glazer kind of uncool idea. <laughs> that, you know, just something... That, I mean, I hope I said ogi right, but anyway, that, that really kind of gives you yeah, a sense. Yeah, it is exactly that thing. It's being judgmental. Also about... She, she kind of dodges the... I mean, she loved the doors, the doors music, I guess. And, and she was kind of... There's another good bit in there talking about um, Jim Morrison being great because he knew how to stand. Mm. The specific way in which a person stands kind of gives you a sense of who they are. And that's a classic kind of Babbitt's it's observation, noticing something right? that's it's, almost unnoticeable. Right, somehow. the kind of stuff that you'd, like you or I would just not even think about, yeah. potentially, and yet she sees it and then she manages to sum up. And it says so much about him and what she wants to say about him. Yeah, because you can see a swaggerer there. You can see someone that's kind of cocksure there. You know what she means when she says that Jim Morrison was great because he just knew how to stand. And then, and then Jim Morrison is later described by someone else as um, basically just being a, a, the greatest crooner since Bing Crosby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so good. And you just know how much Jim Morrison would have hated that. Absolutely. So the Babbitts giveth and the Babbitts taketh away. I yeah. think that's what's kind of wonderful about her as well. <laughs> um, and, and in terms of that, that era, the 1970s, of those rock and roll right of Grail Marcus and Nick Kent and also people like Tom Wolfe and trying to talk about the sort of wider scene, there was such a lot of male ego in the 70s in terms of this sort of this writing it's lovely to read well it's lovely to read Joan Didion it's lovely to re- read Eve Babbitts who's come from it from such a defining the scene in this in the decade in such a different way that was kind of what I was talking about with being able to write about yourself but not being selfish I'm do you gonna, know what I mean or, or make, do you think that's I'm going to make a sweeping generalisation here and that is that my so... we've got a klaxon would you like us to <laughs> <laughs> just brace yourselves guys I think um, women tend to make the best um, observers of, of and, and writers about periods in mm. time. I mean, one of my favourite um, books is Marianne Faithfull's autobiography. Oh, it's so good. It's amazing. And, and really, it's one of the best documents of 1960s, swinging mm. 60s yeah. London that there is because of the granular detail about the books that they read and where they hung out and all of this kind of stuff. And, and, and so in the same way, Eve, I think Eve really kind of does that. But I also... I'm fascinated by the idea that to many people she was this muse. You know, she was just Marshall Duchamp's muse, you know, in this picture of her being naked or she was such and such. She was Jim Morrison's girlfriend that inspired the song L.A. Woman, you know. she And, and actually her writing is this real kind of finger up yeah. to saying, you know what, I had a personality too and it was brilliant and I'm going to get all you guys back and show you how you really are. That's how I see it a little bit. I think so too. What do you think? Yeah. It's a fair assessment. I think that's a very good assessment. <laughs> Lucy's marking Kate's homework. <laughs> what could go wrong? But don't we just all really want to be her? I mean, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? I just, yeah. I mean, she, 
She she describes herself at one point, you know, the sort of wink around. I look like Bridget Bardot, and I was Stravinsky's goddaughter. I mean, she had Bohemia in her yeah. veins. Mm. She she could have just turned up to any party and been like. My godfather's Stravinsky, you know, and what you can't say no. To, I mean, he was one of the greatest composers of the 20th century. I mean, yeah. she just was so cool, and she didn't give a fuck. And I yeah. and I'm really attracted to. Women I think that, like that definitely comes across in so much, and also what other people have said about her as well. That that exact that doesn't. I don't give a fuck, and she doesn't care whether people like her. She doesn't care, and it really. I mean, um, it just doesn't matter. And I think that again with her relationships, like she never got married, she never sort of had kids. She did. She just did her things the way she wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I think that again these are these are kind of not big deals but they're rarities to find in a woman i think i think that's why sorry i think that's why she's resonating so much with yeah. um a younger generation of writers and people because because of that because in this you know era of social media anxiety mm. i think we really crave and are drawn to strong female characters who who don't give a fuck yeah she does i i kind of it kind of makes me feel like los angeles is a feminine city when I read Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion especially. Do you know what I mean? Because I've read so much of it through their lens um, that it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like Jim Morrison standing in a certain way. It feels like those are the people that have defined it for me, actually. It seems... Well, I think Babbitts also makes it very accessible in a way that people... Well, she talks about that, doesn't yeah. she? She talks about how... She's got whole essays in here about how people keep saying, like, oh, I couldn't live in L.A. Like, what, yeah. L.A. is so kind of, you know, unbearable, all this. And she's like, well, I've grown up there. I know it. And if you know it and you love it, and she clearly does love it because she keeps coming back to it. Not, yeah. I mean, she has, you know, she does live abroad for a bit. She lives in New York for a tiny bit, San Francisco. But L.A. is her home. And she writes about it in a way that is totally accessible and not the LA that outsiders like us may be here of this kind of huge place that you just can't get around and you don't know anyone and it's very different it's you know it's a very different city it it does make me think though just to go back to that point about that you you said at the beginning of the show about you know whether a writer could like this the access is Mm. what I'm trying you know now I just don't know if a writer like that could exist because celebrities, could. celebrities just hang out in their big houses. You know, they're not going out in the same way. There's not scenes and there's not sort of, you know, the spot that you have they're to They're not go all down to. at, like, what's it called? Barney's Beanery eating that really cheap chilli and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. You know, like, it <laughs> yeah. just doesn't happen, does it? You know, Yeah, they're not at Ralph's buying kind of insect repellents at three in the morning. I think they're probably still at Ralph's. I mean, that's, that's probably the only place you <laughs> can still there. That Ralph's is, is still there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's called I Used to Be Charming, and it is the rest, supposedly, of Eve Babbitts. So what did it make you think of, Lucy? Well, my pick's a really <laughs> obvious one. It made me think of the recent <laughs> biography about uh, Eve Babbitts called Hollywood's <laughs> Eve, Eve Babbitts and the Secret History of L.A. by Lily Anuluk, I think is how you mm-hmm. pronounce her name. But I apologise if I got that wrong. But I think in particular because um, this biography is interesting, though, not only because it's published so recently, but Anuluk was one of the people who was sort of res- like responsible for bringing back Eve into our um, consciousness recently. She was the one who wrote a piece... Uh, she sort of profiled Babbitts for Vanity Fair in 2014. Mm-hmm. And that took a few years for it to even come together. And she went searching for Eve. And she sort of, you know, she sent letters to her and she got no reply. She kept calling her up, no reply. She kept getting, she got to her via friends. And it took sort of, you know, a good couple of years to sort of get into her and get it, get kind of... Um, to be able to speak to her and then also she had these sort of meetings with her where she'd go and have lunch with her and Eve would eat really quickly and then want to go home again and it was sort of it was just yeah. like she had to sort of seduce her or call yeah. her and she writes even so in this biography about how even now like they're, they're, they're sort of on 
they're quite close they speak very regularly but she wouldn't necessarily describe her as a friend because Eve and if she goes back to this idea that Eve doesn't really give a fuck she doesn't really like doesn't really need doesn't like, need it right yeah. she doesn't really need another friend but the biography is an interesting one it's sort of more it's certainly not a kind of cradle to grave biography not least because Eve is still alive but what it's more like is a sort of homage to you know Eve's best writing and it's basically the author's love letter to the Eve and her kind of absolute adoration of these books. Um, but there's lots of really interesting stuff in there. Like if you've read a lot of Eve's books already, you'll know the kind of basic story of yeah. her life. But I think Anna Luke is very good at putting these sort of extra details, both about her kind of courtship of Eve and like what was going on in, in you know, um, then. But also she says some really interesting things. It's sort of halfway, well, not halfway through, I suppose, a little bit towards the end. It sort of morphs for a little while into a biography of Eve's sister as well, okay. who was younger than her. Uh, and Annalik makes this very interesting comparison. She says they both lived in this very similar time and they actually hung out with sort of a lot of similar people, read a lot of the same things. And she describes them as being, she describes Eve as being, um, if Eve is Dorian Gray, then her sister is Dorian Gray's portrait. Oh, wow. So all this stuff that happened to Eve that sort of was like water off a duck's back in many ways, like she kind of did all these amazing things, shagged all these amazing people and sort of nothing really hit her in the same way. Meanwhile, her sister was doing the same sort of stuff and yet was sort of being scarred by some of it, was kind of, you know, it was maybe a bit more like the rest of us who was taking love affairs a bit more seriously who was having abortions that nearly killed her and this sort of thing uh, so I think there's lots of really interesting stuff in there and also it's fun because she's sort of trying to mimic Babbitt's a little bit in okay. quite a fun way There's, I don't know if I can just read one yes, tiny please. bit here but for example when she's talking about Harrison Ford who we talked at the um, Babbitt was sleeping with Harrison Ford for a while and at the time he was working as a carpenter so before he got his big break he was a carpenter he made one of the things he made was half the deck outside Joan Didion's house I think he gave up halfway through because he was also pot, like dealing pot at the time as well okay. so I think he was not <laughs> but you know but Annalise say she's right she's saying she, the thing about carpenters though is that they really know how to nail it says Eve Harrison could fuck nine people a day it's a talent loving nine people in one day Warren Beatty could only do six like, <laughs> that's so good yeah that's classic <laughs> but it's so I mean that's it's very Annalise, good, very but it's good also on the voice. Babbitt's yeah. right so yeah. she does this I, I think it's really fun if you're a fan then you'd like it yeah I think I read something Something where Annalyn was talking about um, how she wrote that book, and sometimes Eve will call her direct and just say, "I like you. Put, I like that you put the blowjobs in and then put down the yes. phone." And then sometimes she <laughs> yes. will tell her sister or her cousin that she'd like to speak to Lily, and then Lily knows to call. Yeah, they haven't. Okay. It's an odd. It's not a straightforward relationship. And she'll ring up and say things like, "Oh, those those chocolate covered strawberries you sent me. I really liked them." Hint, hint. Like, can you send me some more? You know, it's kind of odd. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I've never. I must. I haven't really read anything like it as well in terms of that relationship between the writer and the subject. Yeah. It is Hollywood's Eve and it is by Lily Analick. Thank you very much indeed, Lucy. Kate, give us some whole celebrity skin. Okay, so when I think of Eve Babitz's Hollywood and I think of unapologetic women, I think of Courtney Love. Yeah. And um, to my surprise or not, it turns out that Courtney Love is a big fan of Eve Babitz. And um, I think she did an interview somewhere recently, maybe it was even in an interview magazine, where she said, I like Eve Babitz. I feel like she's a husky smarter Joan Didion there's something about a native Angelina who's like I'm not going to tell you everything okay and yeah. um I, when I think of people who sort of embody what Eve embodied, body don't care, like everything's out ha, uh, wild messy women and this kind of idea of that you don't have to tame your wildness as a as a female as a woman I think of Courtney Love and um 
the last Hole album uh, in 1998 is called Celebrity Skin. It's great. It's great. It was it was at that point where Hole they'd sort of done live through this. Um, it was very you know it was it was a grunge album I would say, and then this was their major label kind of Geffen Records step up, uh, which obviously a lot of people didn't like, but it launched them to a new audience and it was like sheeny, shiny, alternative rock, and it was all about kind of debauched gnarly Hollywood, you know. And um, on the title track, she talks about this idea of beautiful garbage. And, um, you know, it starts, oh, make me over. So it's this idea, you know, it's sardonic, but it's acknowledging that LA, you can kind of be anyone and anything as long as you sort of acknowledge the artifice. And I think that's also something that Eve Babitz did with her writing, this idea of this knowing, knowing that it's artifice and knowing that it can all be a bit false. Courtney Love did a talk at uh, an all-female film festival run by Tabitha Denholm um, just outside, I think somewhere near Palm Springs, a couple of weekends ago in September. And I couldn't hear the talk, but I could see it on Twitter. It said, um, Courtney Love... On, on Hollywood, like Eve Babitz on Hollywood, Eve Babitz yeah. is Hollywood. And I thought that's, you know, it'd be brilliant if Courtney Love decided to chronicle Hollywood in that way because she she did the music thing, she did the celebrity thing, she just, she's got the film thing, you know, she was in that film with um, Woody Harrelson yeah. and Man on the Moon and 200 Cigarettes. And uh, and she's obviously had lots of ups and downs and it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. And I thought, ah, Excellent. Okay. Fingers crossed that happens. <laughs> um, you two have nailed it. Thank you so much um, indeed um, for that. Um, Kate there, by the way, was talking about Hole's album Celebrity Skin. That brings us to the end of today's show. I Used to Be Charming by Eve Babbitts is out now and it's published by the New York Review of Books Classics. Um, thank you again to my guests today, Lucy Skulls and Kate Hutchinson, and to my producer, Holly Fisher. Um, we'll be back at the same time next week. For the time being, for me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. Nailed it like Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs>